Welcome to our new medical series, Call to Care by Sanford Health. I'm your host, Courtney Collin. Call to Care brings forward medical experts to give fellow clinicians some advice and guidance they can use in their primary care practice and information about when it's time to refer patients and families to that more specialized care. Joining me for six episodes focusing on children's care is Dr. Joseph Sejlon. He's the vice president and medical officer for Sanford Children's Hospital and a leader in pediatric critical care. And he has narrowed down six timely topics for us. Good to see you, Dr. Sejlon. Yeah, good to see you as well, Courtney. So in this episode, we're talking about sentinel injuries investigation for non-accidental trauma. Dr. Sejlon, first, tell us why you chose this topic. Well, you know, unfortunately, in our society, and every provider out there knows this, that uh, we do see child abuse. And, and, and almost more importantly, we have this sneaky suspicion that we miss child abuse. And so I really thought it would be valuable if we got an expert to give us some advice and some, some, um, some support for how yeah. we go about uh, handling this issue. Yeah, well, let's welcome Dr. Jada Ingalls to our conversation. Welcome. Thank you. Dr. Ingalls, thanks again for, for coming and agreeing to talk. Uh, we're excited to have you here today, mm-hmm. and I know our providers are going to really find it valuable. I, I think um, first what I'd like to ask you is what kind of training does a, does a child abuse physician have? Sure. So as always, we go through medical school, graduate from that. We then match into a pediatric residency, which is three years of training. And then after that, you apply and match into a child abuse pediatrics fellowship, which is also three years of training. Great. Thank you. You know, as a pediatric critical care physician, my entire career, I've, I've obviously seen sometimes um, just tragic and horrific consequences of child abuse. Knowing that most of the, the providers that are going to be listening to this podcast are, are outside providers or rather outpatient providers, I, I know a lot of them often worry about missing child abuse and what signs and symptoms will help me identify the child who could be at risk. So could you give us a little bit of an overview and some specifics on what do providers look for when it's, that makes them suspicious that a child may be being abused or neglected? Sure. So I always think that one of the most important topics uh, for anybody who sees children in a medical setting to know about is what we call sentinel injuries. And sentinel injuries are relatively minor injuries from physical abuse that if they're not recognized and intervention does not occur to keep a child safe, typically physical abuse will become worse over time and then you can end up with a more life-threatening injury. And what... uh what what are these or what specific patterns should i look for or what so these are minor injuries that sort of Uh, portend to something more significant in the future? Yes, so we uh, typically use a mnemonic that's called 10-4-FACES-P as a reminder of what are the types of injuries that are part of sentinel injuries. So 10 stands for uh, bruising or injury to the torso, ears, and neck in any child under four years of age. When they've done studies that have looked at where on the body do children normally get bruises from accidental injury versus from physical abuse, it's very unusual for children to get accidental bruising on the neck and specifically on the ears and then the torso being the chest, abdomen, and back. Uh, So those are areas we look for. Um, 
Also, the four stands for any bruising in an infant less than four months of age. So the reason that's important is because infants at under four months can't roll. So they're not going to be able to have an injury that a, a caregiver doesn't know. If they've managed to wiggle off of a couch or something and got a bruise from falling, then a caregiver is expected to know that that fall occurred. They left them in one place and found them in another place. Also, we look at um, the F is for frenulum. So there are three fren frenulum or fren frena in the, in the mouth. So there's two labial frenulum, so one on the upper lip, one on the lower lip, and then the sublingual that's under the tongue. So whenever I do exams, I always flip up the both lips, make sure the frenulums are intact, lift up the tongue, look under there. If you see any kind of bruising, laceration, injury to that area is often a sign that an infant uh, has had a bottle or a spoon shoved in their mouth, or sometimes we'll see it with smothering or suffocation, mm -hmm. where someone places a hand over the child's mouth and they're vigorously moving their head back and forth in an attempt to breathe and that tissue gets torn. And the other area that we look at um, in terms of bruising to the face would be the angle of the jaw, so around your mandible. If someone grabs a child's chin or face and is yelling at them, can leave two circular bruises around that area. Um, cheeks, if there's bruising along like the fatty part of the cheek, that's an area that's harder to bruise, so anywhere that has more fat is not a usual place for an accidental bruise. Eyelid bruising is also concerning, so your orbital rims should be protecting your eyelids, so if we're seeing bruising on the eyelid itself, that's concerning. And then in infants under a year, subconjunctival hemorrhages can be concerning. So sometimes we'll see those um, if somebody has squeezed a baby and you're increasing their intrathoracic pressure and the vessels will break. You want to always be careful, though, that it's not something that happened with birth. Go back, review the, the documentation from the newborn nursery or if parents have pictures from that time because that could be a birth-related finding as well. And then patterned injuries. So pattern injuries of the skin, whether that's pattern bruising, a pattern burn, um, things of that nature. We think about belt marks, loop marks, hand slaps, those type of things. You, you, you said something interesting about ears. Just Could you re be a little bit more specific about ear bruising? Sure. So ear bruising in kids, um, especially if they're not mobile, is very highly specific for physical abuse because, and by not mobile, I mean not ambulatory, not completely walking independently. Uh, and so the way that we see ear bruising in children when it's caused by abuse is typically it could be uh, an open-handed slap to the side of the head or a punch or a kick or strike with an object to the side of the head where the ear gets crushed between the object that's striking the child's head and the actual skull. And so in order to um, make sure that you see all of the ear bruising, in my routine practice, even when I was a resident and I became aware of this, anytime I went to do an ear exam, I would flip the ear forward, just shine the light back there, because sometimes it will only be on the back surface of the ear, or it could even be on the scalp that's um, abutting the ear. Hmm. Okay, thank you. You know, I can't tell you as as a intensivist how many times uh, I've seen children injured from child abuse, and a, a common explanation is the child fell off the couch. That just seems to be a common refrain that we hear. Can you expand a little bit on what kind of um, accidents are innocent, and how, if particularly if the injury seems much more than the history, how do you? What should we be looking for? For the listeners out there, what should they be looking for as far as red flags? Sure. So, yes, yeah, certainly we know that accidental falls can occur. 
When I think about accidental, these would be in the category of shortfalls. And by shortfalls, that means something that's uh, less than six feet in most cases. And that is where a couch fall would fall into. Uh, so when we talk about shortfalls, there have been studies that have even been done on kids that are admitted to the hospital and have a shortfall, whether it's from the bed in the room, the couch in the room, or the crib in the room. And when you look at those studies, the most common outcome of a shortfall at home is going to be no injury at all. Most kids are perfectly fine. If you look at the next level, then you're talking about, well, maybe they have a bruise on the scalp. Maybe they have a scalp hematoma that's palpable. Then after that would be a skull fracture. Um, and then sometimes after that, you could have a bleed either, you know, a subdural bleed underneath of the skull fracture, sometimes subarachnoid. And then kind of when you're getting into things that are more concerning would be a parenchymal injury. We don't expect a parenchymal brain injury from a shortfall without a specific reason. Um, and shortfalls, that could be a whole talking in of itself. Um, but I think, you know, for me, when I come in and I'm thinking about the history and is this possible, I always want to know the child's developmental capability, right? So if somebody says they left them all the way in the back of the couch or in the middle of the bed, is that baby able to roll? Are they able to crawl? Um, would it be possible? Asking the parents, how high is the bed? Because not everybody has it on a on a frame, could just be lying on the floor. Um, is there anything on the floor or in the pathway of the fall that the child could have struck their head on? Is there a nightstand? Is there uh, objects on the floor, toys, other things like that? Thank you. Yeah, I, I think a fair generalization is that if the injury outweighs or seems much more significant than the mechanism, that's probably a, a reason to be suspicious, correct? It is, and also if the history that's given to you is not consistent with what the child's developmental capabilities are, is always a red flag. Yeah, great, thank you, Good, very good advice. I, I know as an intensivist, um, when we saw impact injuries, particularly if it was an impact with a skull fracture, we would very often know that there was a mechanism of injury, but of course, um, subdural bleeds that were bilateral, especially in constellation with retinal hemorrhages, would be much more concerning. And I know that'll be a topic for probably another day. So if I'm in, I'm in the outpatient world and I am seeing children that I have a suspicion, that I'm concerned, what what should I do? Who should I go to? Do I have to go to? And And a lot of times providers are concerned with, what if I'm wrong? What if I accuse this family that has been coming to see me and I'm wrong? Can you, can you ex expand a little bit on that for me, please? Sure. So I think any time that you have a concern, it can be uncomfortable, especially if you are uh, in a primary care provider because the family trusts you. You may have taken care of all of the kids, even other generations of the family, and you want to you're, you can be concerned that they may not return to you if you have to make a report, and that is absolutely a legitimate concern. I think we have to always weigh it against the what is the risk to the child? What if I don't report this and this child goes home, the abuse gets worse, and this becomes a near fatality with permanent disability or death? And, and so I think you have to consider your responsibility to the child's safety, but also what is the mandated reporting laws in your state. And so all 50 states have requirements that if you have a suspicion for abuse of a child that you have to report it. Usually that report goes through Child Protective Services in your respective state. Um, I, for one, always think that it is best to tell the family if you're going to make that report. It is difficult conversation to have. I think families take it better when they are, when they're told that, and you know, you can try to make it so that they don't feel like you're exactly 
calling them out or trying to, you know, our role is never to say who caused the injury. All we can say is that there is an injury I'm concerned about. And what I tell them is that legally, by the state's requirements, as a mandated reporter, I have to make a report whenever I see this particular finding. That doesn't mean that I'm saying that you did it. It's just saying that somebody else needs to investigate it to find out what happened. We also want to make sure that, you know, we're telling families there could be additional workup, um, that sometimes a specialist like a child abuse pediatrician has to come in and see if there could be other alternative, you know, medical conditions that could lead to some of these things. But that usually I end the conversation stating that I know the family loves the child and they want their child to be safe. We want the same thing. Sometimes the conversation goes very well. Parents understand some of them are even mandated reporters in their jobs. Um, and sometimes it doesn't always go as pleasant as we would like it to. Uh, but at least we've told them up front. And then they know that CPS will be contacting them. And it also turns into, um, I think, less surprise. I never think it's fair for a family to just get a phone call or a knock at the door from CPS and not been told that we made that report. What happens if you make a report and you're wrong? <gasps> For you personally, as long as you're making a report in good faith, you're protected by the state statute. You're not going to be in trouble. You're not going to be getting, um, you know, any censuring because you made a report in good faith. It's also, I think, important to remember that the system does not 100% rely on us. So you make a report to CPS. The CPS intake worker looks at it, reviews it, the information with the supervisor, and then CPS decides whether or not they're going to open or not. The vast majority of reports that are made to CPS go through that initial screening process and are never opened. So you could make a report and the family is never contacted by CPS. If they do decide to open, there's two pathways that it goes into. So it either goes into an active investigation, which is rare and less common, or it goes into family assessment, which is more like what kind of services and support can we offer the family and is not a punitive route. I know that is something that's on providers' minds because you, you're often not 100% sure, so that's great information. You know, many, many, many years ago, I was a pediatrician for two years uh, actually on the East Coast, and I, I recall during those two years being very concerned about... Um, not about missing a case. Uh, you know, specifically, you come out of pediatric residency and you understand and you realize, unfortunately, that child abuse is much more common than is talked about. And I know that a, a number of my colleagues out uh, in outpatient medicine, we do worry about missing that case and missing those children that are being abused. I think it's always, you know, you can always recognize, too, that whatever system you're working in, or what, whoever you're near, if there is a child abuse center nearby, you can call that clinic at any time and get a child abuse pediatrician to talk through with you what you're seeing to let you know if it's something that they're also worried about. Sometimes that can give you reassurance. Or if, you know, occasionally we'll see things that someone's worried about, they're able to send pictures through my chart, through the Haiku app, and we can say, oh, no, we recognize this as a particular skin condition or something else that someone may not be familiar with. So I would encourage people also to consider that, to reach out either um, up here to the care clinic in Fargo or to Child's Voice in Sioux Falls. We're always willing to help. Great. Thank you. The other thing I wanted to ask you is, you know, a lot of times um, as an outpatient physician, you're looking at uh, kids do fall and kids get in injuries. And so frequently it's broken bones. You know, there's, there's fractures. Are there specific things that you see on an x-ray that should alert you? 
Sure. So there are some fractures that are highly specific for physical abuse. Those would be posterior rib fractures uh, and also any, any fracture in a child that is non-ambulatory, not walking yet. Great. Thank you. That, that's very helpful. So as you alluded to, there's now um, a child abuse center, and, and you're the first child abuse specialist, I believe, in North Dakota. Is that correct? So Dr. Arnie Graff was here for oh. a while, um, and he had left to go to the Mayo Clinic. So I am picking up where he left off, I believe, approximately six to seven years ago. Oh, well, fantastic. We are so fortunate to have you here in this region, in this community. Um, how, um, well, first, why? Why would I, as an outside provider, when do I refer someone specifically to your center? And how do I go about doing that? Sure. So I think, uh, you know, we see at our center any children where there are concerns for physical abuse, sexual abuse, neglect. We can even see kids where there are concerns for psychological abuse. Um, and we see cases of torture as well. So anything uh, that you are concerned about, certainly you could make a referral through the, uh, the EPIC system. There is an order uh, for child advocacy is the way that you would usually find it for us. I believe there is an order also for a child's voice. And then it's as simple as just putting an order through the chart. If it's something that can wait, you know, another week or two to schedule, that would be something like, you know, maybe parents have concern about some sexualized behaviors or something like that. Um, if it's something you're not sure whether it can wait or it needs to be seen sooner, you can always call us just directly at the phone number for the clinic or through one call. We take calls both ways. Most physical abuse concerns I like to know about uh, sooner rather than later if there's still um, skin injury that's visible because I would like to have high-quality pictures of that that could be taken in my clinic or in the ER in the hospital. And also I want to help providers and get history from them to determine where is the most appropriate place to send this child. Is this a child that needs to go? Are they within the time frame for a sexual assault kit? They need to go to the ER. Is it a child that has a physical abuse injury that may be gone by the time I see them in a week or two and maybe they need to go to the ER as well? Um, so I, um, I personally always just appreciate getting a phone call. I know that takes some time out of the provider's day, but um, I think it helps us direct the child to the right place. So if I'm a provider and I have maybe just a question or a concern, it would be okay to, to give you a call and, and kind of get your advice on a case? Oh, for sure. We're here all the time. We're happy to take phone calls. We do multiple calls a day. Perfect. We want to make sure that these kids are safe, that you feel comfortable with the clinical decisions that you're making. Well, thank you so much. It's really been uh, great to have you here, and it's been uh, you're just a great information source and really helpful. And mm -hmm. I will turn it back to Courtney now. Yeah, Dr. Ingalls, thank you so much for your expertise on cases of non-accidental trauma and giving us more insight on when it's time to make a report and refer to a child abuse specialist like you. Our Call to Care podcast series focusing on children continues with topics from appendicitis to joint pain right here with our own Sanford Health experts. Dr. Ingalls, Dr. Sejlan, thank you so much for being here. Thank, thank you. you. We'll see you soon.